Verse 19, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and his disposition changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This suggests that he liked them, and he's trying to give them a chance. But when they just snubbed him right then and there, his disposition towards them changed. And he was no longer on their side. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times hotter. Now remember, seven is the number of completion. So it doesn't mean like they had a temperature gauge on there and they're like, nope, we're only at six. Keep going. The idea is that they're going to heat it intensely. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times hotter with his normal heat. And he ordered strong soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of the blazing fire. So those men were tied up while still wearing their cloaks, trousers, and turbans, and other clothes, and were thrown into the furnace of the blazing fire. But since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so excessively hot, the men who escorted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were killed by the leaping flames. But those three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the furnace of the blazing fire while still securely bonded, bound. This fire gets so intense that the heat alone kills the soldiers. Now, I have a little bit of an idea that that is actually possible. Okay, I, remember, I mean, I know it's technically scientifically possible, but you're like, okay, that's scientifically possible. There was like at camp, this is camp I used to go to, we would build these bonfires that the wood was the height of the ceiling. And it was like the equivalent of like three of these banquet tables in diameter. And when you light those things on fire, the flames go even higher. Like so high that there was like this tornado heat being created in the tops of the trees. No joke. There are videos of this stuff. And I remember I was a skit leader and I was in charge of like doing these skits for the campers in front of this fire. And I had to stand like more than 15 feet away from the fire because the heat was so intense that I was literally like feeling like I was getting blisters. Some kids actually were getting like little blisters on the back of their legs, standing like 10, 15 feet away from the fire because the heat was so intense. And I remember that I was thinking that night, wow, this is a little, just a little bit of what that heat might be like on the furnace. And I know that it would be serious detrimental um, to my health and stuff if I had gone right up to the fire and stood there like a normal campfire. And so this is the heat. And this furnace is blazing and they throw them out and the men die. This is my favorite History Channel episode. The History Channel did this episode on how this might actually have worked. And they said this. They said that when they were thrown in the fiery furnace, you know when you're grilling or you're baking in the oven and there's always one part of your grill or your oven that's a little cooler than the other part and you know that things don't bake or cook as quickly in that spot as it does in other spots, right? They said just like that, there's a part in the furnace that was cooler and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just happened to accidentally step into that cool spot and all the ding-dongs in the ancient world who aren't scientifically minded just thought, oh, it's a miracle. And little did they know that it was just science. Remember that in their foolishness, they declared themselves wise, but they're really idiots. Here's the thing. Yes, that is scientifically true. There are cooler parts in your oven and there are in your grill than other places. But it's still cooking the crap out of that hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> Even in that little grill or that little oven where the temperature is only like 370 degrees, I'm not going to put my hand on there and be like, hey, kids, science. <laughs> like, seriously, 
What are they thinking? And not only that, you have to pass through the hot spot to get to the cool spot and back through it to get out. And the men are dying just from the heat, which suggests the cool spot is still wickedly evil, right? Like, what are you thinking? Okay, the other thing they said is like, well, there really wasn't four men in there. There was only three. But you know how you see the heat wave in the desert and it makes things look duplicated? And it's like, well, that's what it really was. Well, then there would have been six. Like, they act like these ancient people were idiots. These ancient people build the pyramids, and we still don't know how they did it. Like, come on. So, in the pyramids, the base of the pyramid is perfectly pied to the circumference of the earth. That's why it hasn't collapsed. Like, who figures this stuff out? Intelligent people. This is a miracle. The emphasis on the fact, and you're still going to smell like smoke just standing at the fire grilling. The fact that their clothes aren't um, smelling smoke, nothing was um, fr um, burnt, the ropes were burned off, but nothing else, the men died in the heat, they had to pass through in and out, all that stuff says, this is a miracle. This is an absolute miracle. And this is the other thing that really bothered me about the History Channel. They're going through all these links to show that this story is real, but it's not a miracle. Wouldn't it be easier just to prove that these people didn't even exist? Like, what was the point in even trying to argue that the story is real? I mean, they do that all the time, right? All the time you watch these things, these people didn't exist, these people didn't exist. Instead, they just try to think of a new way. Just prove that Daniel didn't live or something. Like, not that I really want them to go that route, but like, this is just a lot of mental gymnastics for nothing. Verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was startled and quickly got up. He said to his ministers, wasn't there it three men that he tied and threw into the fire? Notice how quickly his mood keeps changing. Like he's fine, then he goes into this rage, and then he calms down, gives another chance, and goes in a rage. Now he's starting standing up, and he's like curious. Like He answered, but I see four men untied and walking around in the midst of the fire. No harm has come to them. And the appearance of the fourth is like that of a god. Now, a lot of people try to argue that this is Jesus, is the fourth one. First, there is nothing in the context that suggests that this is Jesus. Second, the Bible makes it very clear in Hebrews and Peter that long ago God spoke through the prophets and visions, and but today he speaks through our son as if that's a new thing that's happening, and that was not happening in the ancient world. Jesus definitely existed as the second member of the Trinity from time began, but the idea of him being Jesus, as in a human name, is not here. This idea, that of a god, is a phrase that is used all throughout the ancient world of many religions and many kings of the gods. This is just their phrase for a godlike being, a divine being. Remember, there's no, remember who's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar does not go from this angry man who wants to burn people alive because they're not bowing down to him to a fully developed sense of the second member of the Trinity by calling them God. The idea is that this is a God, and this is an Aramaic word that basically just communicates the idea of a God-like being. In his mind, this could be Hercules, even though Hercules doesn't come until the Greeks along, but it could be anything like that, an angel, a half-God, half-human mythological being. He doesn't know. All he knows is that he put three physical men in, and there's a fourth one in there now that he didn't see, so it must be some kind of supernatural divine being. And that's all that's really being communicated here, is that. Don't read too deeply the Second Testament into this passage. 
And Nebuchadnezzar approached the door of the furnace of the blazing fire, and he called out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And of course, if I always did like a skit of this, I would always want to have them call back, why don't you come in and get us? (laughs) But that's me. I can't help it. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego emerged from the fire, and once the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the ministers, and the kings had gathered around, they saw those men were physically unharmed by the fire, and the hair of their heads was not singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor even the smell of fire was to be found on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent forth his angel and has rescued his servants who trusted in him, ignoring the edict of the king and giving up their bodies rather than serve or pay homage to any god other than their god. I hereby decree that any people, nation, or language group that blasphemies the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be dismembered and his home reduced to rubble, for there exists no other god who can deliver this in his way. Nebuchadnezzar promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the providence of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is amazed, and he proclaims this. Now notice, remember, God does not always save every one of his people. For every story where God miraculously saves people from death, there are way more stories where people of faith die. He does not always operate this way. Everybody needs something different to be pointed towards God. Not everybody needs a miracle. There are people who can explain miracles away. I've seen it. Sometimes they need somebody who just cries with them, and that's the thing that breaks them and makes them realize that God is different. Okay, God knows what people need. And when it comes to Nebuchadnezzar, he is pitting his God and his self-deification against Yahweh. This is not just somebody who's like, well, I don't know if I believe there's a God. Or I don't know if your God can heal people. This is someone who's elevated himself to Godhood. And he's put himself par with the gods of Babylon. And then he's actually said... I don't think there's a God who can come against me. And in that moment, that's why God responds in a supernatural way. Now, I don't know exactly 100% why God responds supernaturally here and other places, but the text seems to be hinting that this has more to do with a polemic of God versus the gods. And that he's showing, because his ultimate goal is to get Nebuchadnezzar to come towards him, because he wants to bend the empire towards his will. And so in this case, God chooses to show up in a miraculous way. And this way, Nebuchadnezzar does proclaim Yahweh as superior to the other gods. However, this is not a conversion. Remember, we talked about this. He's not fully stepped into the light of God. He is moving closer, and at least he's responding. He could have just ignored and rationalized it all away. But it's not a full confession. And there's a couple of things that point to this. First, he never really is convicted. He never really confesses his allegiance to God in any kind of way. He merely proclaims that Yahweh is the greatest. Then when he states what amazes him, he's more amazed of what God did and what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to do rather than saying this God is the only God that I want to follow. So he's proclaiming the amazement. Wow, look at what God did. Like some guy riding a t- walking a tightrope in the circus. 
And look at the commitment that Nebuchadnezzar has, like the commitment of a doctor trying to find a cure of cancer. For him, this is amazing. But not that I am going to pledge my absolute undying allegiance to Yahweh as above all their gods. The other thing that you see that points to this is the fruit of his actions. All Nebuchadnezzar has done is taken his angry, you will obey me by threat of death for worshiping him to worshiping Yahweh. Notice, if you don't bow down, I'm going to kill you all. And then at the end, he gives an edict to his entire kingdom. If you don't worship Yahweh, I'm going to kill you all. That's not the gospel message. That's not fruit. All these things point towards a man who's amazed at the power and sovereignty of Yahweh, but not an allegiance committed to him and a fruit of love that comes out of him. There's no transformation of the heart. That's also testified by his own words in chapter 4. He makes it very clear. And the reason I point this out is because many of you will be like, well, yeah, I know that because chapter 4, he's not committed. The reason I point that out is we've got to be very cautious about how quickly we jump on board of people saying, oh, your God's amazing. Or, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And they're like, oh, they got saved. This is so awesome. Now, if that's true, yes, it's truly something to be celebrated. But too often we have been either intentionally or unintentionally duped by people's professions of God's power or his love or something like that. And we've been convinced that they're going a certain way, maybe even put them in positions of leadership in the church to find out that there wasn't really truly a transformation. There wasn't really true commitment. And just because somebody says, I've accepted God or I follow God, doesn't mean that we all just start praising and acting like it's happened. And we have really messed ourselves up. We have a long history as a church of putting people in positions of influence that should have never been there because we just think they say, I love God or I believe in God, and that's enough. The early church required you to live the faith out for over a year before you were even allowed into the regular church gatherings, and then before you were even allowed to have leadership. One of the reasons is, if they were ever discovered, they were going to be executed by the Roman government. And you just don't let anybody willy-nilly in because they say, I love God. And so there was always a necessary factor of producing fruit. And the fruit is what the Bible calls us to. Not all fruit looks the same. And the only way to see real fruit is to have a relationship with them and discipling them. And that's the other mistake that the church has a long history of, of, is getting people saved, stamp, stamp, send them out, let's move to the next person. Like they're an assembly line. What the Bible has called us to is to disciple people. And to disciple true transformation that lasts for a long time of perseverance because the Bible constantly points to the idea that the true mark of the believer is not confession but perseverance in the faith and that requires transformation and commitment and this is the thing here don't immediately get caught up in Nebuchadnezzar because you're constantly disappointed every chapter we need to look for the real signs of conversion and notice that all throughout this who's constantly by Nebuchadnezzar's side Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, especially Daniel. When we get to chapter 4, he's going to go weird and insane. And yet Daniel will be there with him the entire time. This is discipleship. This is long-term commitment to him until he finally actually has a true conversion. And that's important to see here. We need to get invested deeper in the lives of people.
rather than just look to their propaganda or their accolades. Nose, once again, they didn't condemn the culture. They didn't yell and scream and say this is unjust. They, they didn't rebuke. They didn't vilify. They didn't shame anybody. They quite, in fact, they didn't even make a nose of it. They didn't stand up with their John 3.16 signs. We're not bound down. I'm not saying there's anything bad with those signs, but this idea of look at us, look at us. They didn't draw attention to themselves. They would have been completely unnoticed if it hadn't been for the other people. And then when they were brought up, they're like, we're not going to defend ourselves. We don't have to. They, they didn't give in and say like, oh, I'm going to give all these arguments and, da, 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 and you're wrong and here's why. Da, da, da. Even Jesus didn't argue with Pilate. Because arguments don't really convince people. They just quietly said, we're not going to defend our actions. We're not going to give you all these reasons why we're wrong. We're just going to tell you we know our God can rescue us. And even if he doesn't, we're still committed. They proclaimed their faith, but they didn't argue, rebuke, vilify, condemn, and shame anybody and protest and scream. Not once in here have you seen protesting. Even in human history, there's really no protesting that has really produced really, truly permanent, altering lifestyles in America. The only protesting that I really know of that has really changed America at a deep level is Martin Luther King, and it was non-violent commitment to God and their morals. They didn't yell and scream in the streets at people. They didn't vilify or condemn or shame. And they weren't violent. They just were committed. In fact, Martin Luther King said he was strongly influenced by the examples of Daniel and modeled a lot of that after them and other influences as well. And just a people who say, we're not going to take it anymore. And we're going to stand here and live our life the right way and we're going to shut you down, so to speak, but peacefully. We're not going to participate in your culture when you're discriminating like this. And that changed the culture. But whenever you see people yelling and screaming and picketing, we've all forgotten about the last protest, right? Hasn't produced anything. We need to seriously think about the way that we have changed cultures. Because in the end, we just burn bridges and look like angry people. And that's not Christ-like. So once again, this is another example of the government not targeting them. They weren't specifically targeted by the government. We're going to make a law that's going to kill you and you only. It wasn't until they were noticed and they were pulled out. And then, then they stood up for their faith. But again, they didn't condemn. They didn't vilify. They didn't shame. I think these stories are a powerful example to how we are to conduct ourselves right now currently in our culture and what it truly means to be Christ-like when the culture is just going back crazy and everybody's teaching you you should yell and scream like everybody else. One of the arguments that Paul is making in the book of Romans is that we are a new people in Christ a people that is unique and unlike any other people group that has ever existed in the history of mankind. And because we are a unique people in Christ, we don't act like the world. We don't think like the world. We don't act like the world. We don't run institutions like the world. We don't evoke change like the world does. 
We don't fear like the world. We don't get angry like the world. Now, Paul is not saying that we don't have any of this. He's not saying we don't make mistakes. He says Christians do sin. And you don't write all these letters to the Corinthians and encourage them to become Christ-like if you really truly believe that Christians don't sin and make mistakes. But what Paul is arguing is that, yes, we mess up, and yes, we make mistakes, and yes, we continue to sin, and yes, the struggle is still there. However, we've been called through the Holy Spirit transforming us to be different. One of the worst things you could ever say is, but mom, everyone's doing it. Because the call, Bible is called us to be unique and unlike that. And Christ gave his life to make you different. We need to seriously ask, what is it that the Bible has called me? And it's wisdom and love to respond. The world responds in fear and anger. The believer who has the Holy Spirit responds in wisdom and love. And that's what we should be modeling our life after, is the men of wisdom and love and the women and not the culture of fear and anger.